0: Go ahead and, yeah, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus is one of the, the pastoral epistles written by Paul to several pastors. And so I don't know about you, but um, it might pop, the question in your head might pop up. Okay, so this is written to instruct pastors. I'm not called to be a pastor. so So how does this relate to me? Well, if you look closely, what you'll see is a man being instructed to push people in his life who really need pushing. But if he pushes them, he runs the risk of having them despise him or them thinking he's judgmental. And so I'm guessing if you're, if you're again, if you're like me, you probably got people in your life that, that you know need pushing and you, you run kind of some of the, the same challenges. Um, and so I think what you'll see in this text is something from someone who's pretty relatable, actually. Um, what Titus I- I- is facing here is he's, he's a young man, probably actually about my age, and, um, and he's gotten instruction from Paul to essentially reform an entire island. He and Paul earlier had traveled to the island of Crete and had, had set up, basically evangelized a number of people, and many people got saved. So Paul decides, okay, I'm going to go now, Titus, and you're going to stay behind, and you're going to set up the church here. You're going to set up pastors. Um, it's a pretty intimidating task for anyone. And so not only that, but then Paul writes this letter to Titus, and at the very beginning of ch- chapter one is Paul saying, okay, Titus, here's what you need to do. You need to find guys who are qualified to be pastors. Remember, we're talking about brand new Cretan Christians. You got to find pastors who are, who are disqualified. And then after that, chapter two, he says, oh, and by the way, every single member of society, the older men, the, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men, and even the slaves have to live at a very high, high standard of moral living. And he says, Titus, you're responsible for pushing them to do this. you got to do this. So that raises the question, how, how can Paul expect Titus to be able to do this? How can Paul expect Titus to go into people's lives and push them, people who are likely his friends even at this point, and push them on personal issues in their lives. No doubt Titus would encounter a a kind of a a fear. Um, And this is some some speculation on my part. But at some point he's going to have to deal with the fact that he's got problems of his own. And so how is he supposed to push all these people when when he feels like a, a hypocrite, potentially? And you and I face that same kind of, that problem with people in our lives. Um, the problem is that uh, we hesitate to push others because we feel unqualified. And that might be for another number of reasons. It might be because you've got a whole bunch of problems of your own. Uh, it, it might be because uh, you know, they know you've got problems. And they think you, you don't have the right to go pushing them. So what are you supposed to do with that? Well, we're going to look at these five verses. And these five verses, Paul is going to go from saying, here's where you got to bring these people to, to here's why you can expect this. Here's why you can push them. That's our passage. It's the why. But before we get into this, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for for making yourself knowable to us. for not only showing us you you in your holiness but also showing us you in your graciousness thank you for for supplying your own holy demands by sending your son to to fulfill them and to deal with our guilt and to bring us into fellowship with you. Help us live in light of that now. And I pray that you would not only make your word make sense to us intellectually here, but you would, uh, you would, you would persuade our hearts and our affections. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've already read the passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up um, with an with a illustration here that's also going to function as a case study. So, I've worked at uh, Bob Jones for the last couple of years now as a resident mentor, which means I I live in the dorms and I befriend these guys. Wow, that's that's really hiccuping there, isn't it? Is that on my end or toggle it? Okay. Okay. Promise not to get distracted if it glitches like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just continue. Um, so, so, yeah, I, that means I live in the dorms, and I get to give these guys advice and counsel and hear them out. Well, one night during my office hours, I get a knock on the door, and it's one of my guys, and I, I know him well. He's a good guy. He comes in, though, and he's very sad, uh, and he, he, uh, he tells me he just broke up with his girlfriend, and I don't know, to you that might sound kind of comical, but at that at that point in situation in life, that's a big deal. Your heart feels like it's broken. It feels real. And he he, I, I say, okay, tell me all about it. What happened? What was the circumstances? And and he opens up, and it, he says it, it basically it basically kind of went down like this. They were hanging out with each other, and he's he's a fun loving guy. He likes to pick on people. He's picking on her like he normally does. And she just explodes. And she, she, she starts tearing him down because, and saying, you, you just constantly berate me and you constantly break me down and tear me down. And he's like, well, wh- where'd this come from? Well, as it turns out, she came from a culture where there was no sarcasm. And so for her, whenever he would pick on her, she took that as, as a personal attack. So, the way she processed it, she, she knew she should probably push him on it, but the way she processed it was she just suppressed it. She buried it and, and probably convinced herself that she was covering it in love. But, you know, what happens when you bury something long enough and enough of it, it comes out and explodes. And that's exactly what happened. And so he figures that out and he says, Well, how can you expect me to read your mind? Uh, you, you need to be forthright with me. You need to be telling me this stuff. And, and you need to be, you need to trust me with this. And so then in his mind, it became a matter of her not trusting him. And so then all of a sudden now it's her fault. And so he, he, he says, you know what, I, if you're not willing to trust me, this relationship just can't work. And so he broke up with her. And so now I'm thinking, oh, okay, okay. This is a little bit more of a complicated situation than I thought. Um... And so, but what you see here, at least at the outset here, is is something that's that's maybe kind of far removed from you guys. You probably haven't, um, most of you probably haven't broken up with anybody recently. <laughs> but you probably experience a similar kind of, of conflict, right? You get accused of something um, because the other party pushes you in a way that just rubs you the wrong way. It feels like an attack to your ego and everything that you are. And you've got to justify yourself. And so you've got to push them back. And then pretty soon you've got this, this nasty conflict. And, and how, how are you supposed to handle that? Are you supposed to just bury it, cover it with love, never push anyone? Well, this again gets to this idea of, um, let's see if this is working here. Okay, uh, I've already told you, let's see, is it, oh, is it working? Okay, all right, well, look at, look that way. <laughs> yeah, this is the issue we're all running into. We hesitate to push others because we feel unqualified, and that's exactly Titus's situation. He's got all these Christians here who are brand new, and he needs to push them all. Paul himself, in this letter, describes them by by reading, basically quoting one of their own people. He says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. And he's talking about the Christians here. So we're, we're talking about Christians who've got some serious problems here, and they need pushing. And so... So this is where we're going to now look at our text, and we're going to see how, how does Paul expect Titus to push him on this. So first up, first thing you're going to see is this concept of grace. This is for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared. And that's where I'm going to say because God rescued you, um, and I've got three points here that I see in this text. One, you must change by his grace. Two, you've got to internalize his grace. And then the three is you've got to nurture other people with his grace. We're going to take these one by one. But let's start with um, you, you need to change by his grace. So, first thing you're going to see in verse 11 is the fact that grace comes from God. That might seem obvious, but if you break it down, you'll see how Paul describes grace as something that rescues people and that it's shown itself to every single kind of person. You remember how Paul just spent chapter 2 talking about the older men, the older women, and the younger men, the younger women, the slaves. Paul is again reminding Titus, look, this is for everyone. Everyone who professes to be a Christian needs to live this particular way because this grace has appeared to them. Now, that kind of raises a question in, your, in my mind. Anyhow, what comes to your mind when you think of grace? Um, unmerited favor. Okay, good, good. That's that's definitely a, a more biblical one. That than I've, I don't mean to be a critic here, but a lot of the times what I hear typically used is is more like something like a grace period. Have you heard that expression? Okay, what's a grace period? Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. It's okay if you come in five minutes late, even though you're not supposed to, but we're going to wink at it. Okay, in Paul's mind, grace is not winking at sin. Um, let's, not not saying that if you show up five minutes late, by the way, that you're sinning, but you, you get the idea here. <laughs> um but what paul wants us to see is that secondly grace teaches you to obey which is really interesting because the way you see it is that grace rescues you even when you're a sinner even when you don't deserve it even when you don't obey but on the other hand paul says grace teaches you to obey how Um, and so He's going to say grace teaches you to abandon inordinate desires and grace teaches you to embrace a holy lifestyle. If you look at verse 12, the way he particularly says it is he talks about denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. If you look at the the word, the words behind worldly lusts, what he's talking about is worldly. Or in, in, in the Greek, that's referring just to the temporal place we live in. Not necessarily inherently evil in this particular context, but temporal things. And then the, the Greek word behind lusts is it also not inherently evil, but it refers to a strong desire. So you'll see this referred in, in other letters Paul writes, even in letters that James writes, and it definitely has like an evil tone to it. But then if you read in Galatians, you'll see that the Holy Spirit lusts against the flesh. And so it's not inherently evil. What it means is to have a desire that drives you. This is the, the desire, that the deep down root desire, that commands you to do basically whatever you'll do. Um, and what Paul outlines here is you've got these um, lazy people, they're gluttons. They love comfort. They love comfort in life. That's what they have an inordinate desire for and it determines all of their decisions. How much, how much uh, alcohol should I drink? Well, apparently Paul actually pushes these like the wives says, don't, don't be addicted to wine. Why? Because their ruling desire for comfort was saying, have as much as you want. How much do you need to be comfortable? and Paul saying, "No. That's not for you." And then he he pushes the the older men. Be self-controlled. Why? Well, because when they're being ruled by the desire for comfort, what are they are they going to be self-controlled? No. Why would they be? Well, maybe except unless it's unless it's conducive to what they want. Okay. So you get the idea. That is what that is what it basically is for for a, a desire here, and so what he's saying is, Christians who have been changed by grace deny those desires. They don't. They don't. Um, they they take those desires and they subordinate them to a greater desire. And so, what's the greater desire? Well, he says that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You deny that old desire for a greater desire so that you will live in a different way. So the, the greater desire basically is, in this context, it's the grace of God. You've got a God who would actually love you so much when you don't deserve it that it would send his only son. This is simple truth. This is the, the gospel that you know. But it will change the way you behave, the way you even push other people. That's that's his big idea here. Um, I, I've i got an illustration here. It's going to sound silly initially, but bear with me. It's been really helpful for me in terms of explaining this. So you've got a soccer game, right? You've got two teams, okay? Team A gets the ball from Team B, right? What do they do with a soccer ball now? Yeah, they they go try and make a goal. I mean, they hardly ever do. That's why... I can't stand soccer, but anyhow, that's what they try and do, right? It it would be really dumb if they got the soccer ball and started cheering and and just run off the field as though they had won the game, right? That'd be absurd. It would also be equally absurd if they tried and score a goal without the soccer ball, right? Okay, this is kind of what Paul is saying here. If you're going to push people... If you're going to love them in this selfless way, what you need to do is do it because of the grace of God to you. So imagine it this way. The grace of God, I know it's a silly illustration, but it helps me think about it. The grace of God is like the soccer ball. And if you get the grace of God and you savor it for yourself and you sing songs about it and you enjoy it and you relish it, but then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to push my friends who I, I know I need to. I'm not going to do that. I, that, would, that would really mess up my comfort. Um, I might lose their approval. That would be just as absurd as getting the soccer ball and then just carrying it off the court with yourself. That, it makes no sense. But on the other hand, if you go and try and push your friend for any other reason aside from the grace of God, this is what Paul's saying. It's just as absurd as trying to score a soccer goal without a soccer ball. It makes no sense. Showing this kind of undeserved favor to other people has to come from the fact that you have been shown undeserved favor. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he's saying grace teaches you to live this way. Okay. Now let me give some clarifications. Um because the more you latch onto this truth, you're going to encounter some barriers. So here's some clarifications. One is um, you can get OCD about your motivations. Okay, this is something you don't need to do. <laughs> you'll go and you'll go and do something good. You'll go and push someone, and you'll think, okay, did I do that because of the grace of God? I think I did. Although, actually, now that I think about it, I think there was some selfish motivation in there. I think I had some desire for comfort there. I was still a little afraid that I would lose their approval. Oh, great. I didn't quite do it right. And you can work yourself up into a tizzy here. Okay. You don't have to do that. Why? Because it's not important? No. No, it is important. You don't have to do that because of grace. What's the root fear there? That you did something wrong. That you disobeyed God. Okay, realize that the very grace you're trying to do is because forgives you for even that. And that doesn't give you license to be like, oh, I don't care about my motives then. I don't care about my desires then. No, it gives you, it gives you a freedom. It gives you a strength that you didn't have before. Beforehand, you, you might go push people because, because you've got prove to prove to them that you're more moral than they are. Beforehand, you did it because you desired to prove to everyone else that you're really somebody here, that you're right, that you're the justified one. Now you go and prove them because God has justified you. He has redeemed you. That totally changes everything. It'll even change the way you go about it. We'll talk about that more later. Um, Another obstacle you might encounter is um, this concept of grace being a mystical zap. Okay, Um, I don't know. A lot of the times the way I hear it is people will say, oh, I'll do such and such by the grace of God, or I did such and such by the grace of God, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But notice how Paul uses the word grace here. It's not just a mystical zap that kind of gives you the oomph to do what you need to do. When Paul talks about grace, he has something very particular in mind, and we'll see it more in detail later, but what he's talking about is Jesus for us, Jesus in our place, undeserved love that totally deals with all your guilt, all your past failure, and secures for you eternity. That's that's what he means by grace. So that's just another obstacle that you'll want to watch out for. Um, The next point is you've got to internalize his grace. So not only must you change yourself by his grace, but you've got to internalize his grace and that's what you're going to see in the next verse here verse 13 you must internalize God's future grace that's the first thing he says here look at verse 13 It says looking for that blessed hope okay that word looking um you don't have to know all the, all the Greek grammar and everything but it is helpful to know that this is what they call a middle a middle a middle voice there we go uh, middle voice all that means is this word looking means you're doing the looking in such a way that it has an action that that comes back on you and the way we normally would translate this is you are looking for yourself you're going to go see this for your own benefit here okay and the best word that i could come up in in the english that i could think of is internalize you're going to take this and and Get it inside you. Okay, and so the first thing he talks about here in verse 13 is looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing. He's talking about the same thing. What's the blessed hope? It's the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying God the Father is going to come and, and, and Jesus the Son is going to be there too. He's actually calling Jesus God. This is one of the big passages in the scriptures that shows you the deity of Christ. And what Paul is doing here is, by way of contrast, he's highlighting the character of Jesus. He's the great God, preeminent, and he's the the very close and personal Savior at the same time. And he's using language like, look at this, blessed hope, glorious appearing, Great God, he's using the language of beauty and magnificence. Why? Because he's interested in more than just giving you an information dump. He's not merely telling you that Jesus is coming back and that he, he died for you. He wants to persuade your affections. He wants to show you this is not only the truth, but it is desirable it's worth anticipating. And what he's talking about, this actually contrasts from remember the worldly the worldly lusts of the previous verse, this is the contrast. While the worldly lust used to rule you, now you've got a greater desire, a greater anticipation. And it's this glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. That's what you need to internalize. Jesus will return beautifully. And Jesus will return as the saving God. Now, again, I want to tell you how this strikes me. I'm at a place in my life where I'm about to get married, okay? Jesus' second coming is not immediately attractive to me, (laughs) even though it should be. (laughs) I've got something else that's very beautiful to me. But there that's where I've got to kind of recalibrate my thinking and realize, okay, Paul actually means for this to be insanely attractive in such a way that it would actually change the way I behave on a day-to-day level. Okay. So so what's the disconnect here? I think the disconnect is if, if that's what you're feeling, it's probably because you might have fallen into the subtle thinking that what's to come, like heaven, that that is somehow foreign and very, very different from what we have here. And what we have here is very, very, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good in in many ways. This is, I'm speaking from my perspective. I realize I'm speaking as a 30-year-old guy, okay? So, so take that into account. But it's not all bad. And, um, and what's out there? It's unknown. It's uncharted territory. I'm not sure about it. But the more you read the scriptures, the more you'll see what, what is attractive about heaven, about life with God in eternity, is actually that it is the best of what we have here, but better. Without sin. Without, without disobedience to him without mixed motives. And what's even better than all of that is he's going to be there. And he's going to be there in such a way that whereas right here, you believe he's given you his full approval, but there you'll be able to hear him say it. "Well Well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will say that to you. And so I think that's what the disconnect is, and one of the best illustrations that I've come across is um, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. Um, I'm going to take away the um, quote until I I get to it, but basically, I I don't know how many of you have read it, but C.S. Lewis paints this picture in which it's, it's the end of the world, basically. The evil forces have pretty much just destroyed the good forces. And Aslan is is nowhere to be seen, as I recollect. And so it's like, what just happened? We had this wonderful Narnia, and now everything is ruined. And evil has won the day. And the main characters have died. What do you do with that in a story? (laughs) But they actually haven't die died because they find themselves in Aslan's land, which would be the equivalent of heaven. And and it dawns on one of the characters, the unicorn, is something very important that kind of summarizes why the afterlife with Christ will be so attractive. The way he puts it is he says it says, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right hoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like, looked a little like this. The reason why we love the old Narnia is was that it looked a little something like this, and this is this is that truth, that the beauty of heaven is basically Christ will be there, and I believe there will be something, there will be something insanely familiar about it because it's Christ with full approval for you. That is a part of the truth that you're to internalize that Paul wants you to do. If you're going to push other Christians, that has to grip who you are. That's got to change how you think, how you do things in life. Not only must you internalize his future grace, you have to internalize his past grace. Look at verse 14. He describes Jesus, he says, "...who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people." zealous of good works, zealous of good works. So here you see that Jesus paid himself to buy your freedom from lawlessness. That's what that word for iniquity is. You also see that Jesus paid himself to clean you. And Jesus paid himself so that you would fanatically do good. When I say Jesus paid himself, that comes from the word redeemed. He purchased you out of, the, out of the slave market to sin, the slave market to your old desires. And that's why it's so important to realize that as a Christian. Actually, um, yeah, yeah, that's wh- that is what you need to realize. Uh, so, so, just for the sake of time, I'm actually going to have to skip this illustration. Um, we go i'm going to jump to the clarifications here so one um here you see how paul is encouraging us telling titus to to internalize this grace for himself be looking for it um one i'm gonna say we're gonna have to avoid ungracious devotions and things like that Um, here's what i mean by that Uh, so when you do your devotions It can be easy to slip into a habitual uh, uh, chapter a day to keep the devil away. What Paul is talking about here is in internalizing the scriptures, you're not just internalizing the scriptures in general. You're internalizing the grace you see in particular. I'm not telling you don't read the Bible. You absolutely should. But what Paul is saying here is, when you go to internalize what you know about God, it's His grace, it's His undeserved favor, Jesus for you, that you need to internalize, um, and you you do that in your devotions. Actually, what Sarah was talking about earlier, one great way is through music. You probably already know this, but um, so yeah, the the coffee ministry is just as I am. That's actually that is one of my favorite um. Series that's something Amber and I listen to a good bit, where you see in beautifully laid out music who God is and how He's rescued us from sin, and what that means for us today. Uh, that's a great way not to not just to internalize it into your mind, but into your heart to change your affections. Another clarification would be to a, av- avoid ungracious pushing. So, so this is. This is really a true thing. If you aren't empowered by this grace personally, you can't expect to empower others with it. Uh, if if you don't internalize this grace for yourself, when you go to push others, you're likely going to do probably one of two things. If it really hasn't suck in, sunk in that Jesus redeemed you when you didn't deserve it, you'll probably try and minimize your own sin to deal with your fear of hypocrisy. And you'll probably also, or... Or you might just be so paralyzed with the fear of hypocrisy that you wind up not pushing anyone. And so what you need to do is avoid this un, this kind of ungracious pushing that comes from that. And what you need to do is internalize that grace for yourself. So then the third point would be that you must nurture others with his grace. Uh, look at verse 15a. Paul says to Titus, these things, he's talking about grace, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And he's saying basically tell people about doing good, encourage people about doing good, and even confront lies about about doing good. Because there were some people in that congregation who were basically heretics, as you'll find out later, who were saying... uh, You really you gotta be you gotta do good works in order for God to to look on you favorably. That's so opposite towards grace. So the second point though is is perhaps controversial here, but Paul tells him you must authoritatively push people. And while he is talking to Titus, and Titus is a pastor, there is a sense in which we have a kind of authority to push people. Now this might this might rub you the wrong way. Because you might think, um, you might get soo- this might sound overbearing, but what Paul is talking about, an authority here that, that we have, doesn't come from our perfection. It comes from the fact that we've been forgiven. And so we get to push people in such a way that's not us saying, look, you need to measure up to us. But that says, look, I- I've been forgiven with you. Let's live in light of that. Um, so that would be the big idea there. Push people based on God's authority. And he even says push people so they don't reject you, uh, so that they don't despise you. So for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush towards the end here. Um, this, is, this is really the big idea here. The more you comfort people with God's grace the more you can convict with God's duty. Does that make sense? The more you comfort people, the more you can convict them. If you've comforted someone with the balm of the fact that Jesus has forgiven them and that, yeah, they've failed, but Jesus has wiped that clean here, then what you set them up for is a kind of a strength, an inner strength that can bear some good pushing. Um, You can actually push them in such a way that actually becomes it becomes comforting because it highlights that grace that God has given us. Uh, so let's get back to that case study I was talking about, that, that, that ugly breakup, okay? <laughs> so the way that plays out is I, I hear the guy out and uh, he vents his frustration. I empathize with him because that, for me, When I, when I, thankfully God had really impressed on me his graciousness towards me. Because everything in me wanted to say, you moron, can't you see? You're you're totally trying to justify yourself at her expense. Can't you get outside yourself? Okay, well if I did that, I would be subtly communicating, you have to be, you have to be good in order to earn favor. I, I would be implicitly communicating that just by just by the way I was pushing him, so what was proper at that time was to empathize with him, sympathize with him, hear him out. He said that she expected him to read her mind, and there was it sounded like that was kind of going on. Is that fair for her to expect that? Well, no, is that all there was to the story? Definitely not but but I can still empathize with that because that is wrong that's wrong for that and so I can say, man that's hard yeah that 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 isn't right for her to expect that. And I, I, on the one hand, earn his trust. And on the other hand, um, I give him a clear sense of what's right and wrong. Because I don't want to give him the impression that that was okay for her to do. So, so you, you let grace affect you as you push other people. Okay, so I hear him out. And then, and then I tell him what we both have in common here. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's justified. And then I, I, I tell him, look, if you're, if you're justified by Christ, how come, how come you're, you're not willing to own your responsibility in this matter? It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, you've been sarcastic in a way that you were totally oblivious to, to how she felt about it. And she felt strongly about it. You, if the more Christ's grace really permeates you you'll have the freedom and the fortitude to be able to take that kind of criticism and say, yeah, that's, yeah I probably did do something. I probably was not sensitive. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll own that. Um, because Christ has forgiven even that. Christ absorbs God's wrath for even that. And I, I, I pushed him on that. And he took it. He took it graciously. And he realized that he was wrong and he should have owned his responsibility and he should have put her needs above his own. And he should have heard her out, but he didn't. So what's the next thing to do? Get back together with her? Don't break up? I, I couldn't tell him that that was the thing to do. But I did tell him he did need to, to make it easy for her to forgive him. And so what he went and did, he called her, and he had a good conversation with her, and he owned his side, and he, he asked for her forgiveness. But there was something else that he did that was really cool, Because now now that he had internalized God's grace, he now could push her on what she had gotten wrong, not to justify himself, mind you, which is really important, fine line in that. But now he could push her to serve her, to help her, to to liberate her from from being bound by bitterness and, and the guilt that comes from that. And so they, they wound up not getting back together, but, um, but they mended their friendship. And that was a really good thing. Uh, so um, so that's where, um, that's, that's a picture, a case study, so to speak, of what it, what it looks like. Um, I've got... <sighs> This is the first time I've done a sermon on PowerPoint, in case you couldn't tell, and I had no clue how long this was going to take, and so I've, I think I've run out of some of my time, which I would have liked to have spent on some questions that might pop in your head, like, should I mention grace every time I push someone, which is really worth considering, and um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, I've got about three or four of these questions that I would encourage you, there's more thinking and studying to be done on this. More talking about this. So I would I would encourage you guys, take time to find answers to questions like this. Do you gotta mention grace every single time you push someone? Um uh, won't this create a culture of criticism? That's huge. Because as soon as you feel a freedom to start pushing other people, what's that mean? You're always pushing other people. How do you avoid creating a culture of this criticism? Okay? So that's something else you got to consider. Um, and then what about toxic friends? You have friends in your life who are bringing you down, man. What are you supposed to do about them? You're supposed to push them? Is it okay to get just, the world will tell you, delete them from your life, chop them off. Is that the Christian response? But on the flip side, you've got some friendships that are genuinely hurtful to you. If you do, what are you supposed to do? So we need nuance here, actually. we got to think through these things. It's not simple and easy. Um, So I'm going to end this by saying living in grace is a journey. Be patient with yourself and be patient with others. You're going to go look inside yourself, and you're going to see all kinds of, of evil worldly desires that dictate very bad behavior and even dictate good behavior. Your love for comfort might even look like you doing good things to other people. Um but not for the right motive. <laughs> and so what you'll see is is a lot of impurity in yourself. What you need to remember though is that grace cleansed you. Christ has cleansed you. And let that constrain you to live differently. What um oh freeze freeze on. I don't know what that means. Oh, what a shame. I had, that's okay, I've got it on my phone. That was a good backup. Okay. The other, uh, the in, in closing, uh, you might have heard the name uh, William Cooper. William Cooper was uh, a hymnist. He wrote hymns. Uh, but before he did, he really wrestled with assurance of salvation to the point where he thought, God for sure was going to send him to hell. And in a fear of that, in a doubting God's grace, he winds up actually getting institutionalized for insanity. That's how bad it gets. But then uh, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, befriends him and pushes him and says, here's what you need to do. You need to focus on the grace of God and all the details of that, and you need to write music about it and poetry about it. And so he does, and it changes his life. And one particular hymn he wrote, I wanted to read it uh, for you because it's, it's incredibly poignant and to the point. The final stanza reads this way. He says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I'll read that again. It says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, Jesus obeys the law for you where you couldn't. And to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That really encapsulates this. Grace teaches you to be zealous for good works, fanatical about good works, and empowers you to push others well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word here. Thank you for uh, the clarity you've brought here. I pray that you would bring even more clarity. Give us skill to know how to push other people well, not to prove ourselves in any way, but to serve them because you selflessly served us first when we did not deserve it. Change our minds and change our hearts, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name, amen.